The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We turn our attention back to our study of Luke's Gospel. We pause this about three weeks ago, uh, thanks to, uh, to, to COVID-19, we're, however, back. I'm very grateful for Jack White and his kindness to come and to fill in the last two Sundays and opening God's Word and teaching. Thankful to have good friends who are capable at handling the truth and willing to step in and serve. Really thankful for Jack. This morning we come back to Luke chapter 7. I would ask you to just bear with me a little this morning. I've still got a little bit of a lingering cough here. So uh, I'm going to try not to be rude and cough on you, but I may not be able to help it at some point here. We pick up in verse 24 of Luke chapter 7 this morning. We'll read through verse 35 and attempt to work through the rest of this text this morning. Luke writes this. He says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Unfortunately, we left uh, in the middle of this this lengthy passage that that we're catching the conclusion of just uh, three weeks ago. We left poor John the Baptist languishing in prison. He's been there for three weeks until we finish up this text. But uh, we have to pick up where we were, and I know that you are studious people, and you remember everything that's said on any given Sunday morning. However, this morning we will try to review just a tad uh, for the benefit of those who may not have been with us a couple of weeks ago. 
We begin at the early part of this text looking at the issue of doubt because the whole context, the broader piece of John, I mean, Luke chapter 7 here, deals with John the Baptist. He, he, we saw him earlier in Luke's gospel back in chapter 3, and his ministry was introduced to us, but we sort of went silent for a little while, and now he's brought back up again by Luke. And he's brought back up sort of in this little snippet of his life where he is in prison. And it's really near the end of his life. And not only is he in prison, but he's not at the height of his faith. He's, in fact, wavering and he's doubting and he's confused about, what, about what's happening in the world around him and the ministry of Christ. And so he sends some emissaries to Jesus to sort things out. John is a man who who walked by faith. He's a man who understood who Jesus was and who had embraced him and who had prepared the way for him, who had declared that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had received the truth of the gospel. But like so many of us who received the truth of the gospel, his walk of faith wasn't always marked by a consistent confidence that never wavered. Can you identify with that? Can you identify with the reality that even people who embrace the truth of Christ, who fully embrace the gospel, are not people who walk lives of constant, consistent faith that never wavers? That was true of John. It's certainly been my experience, and I trust to some degree or the other it's been yours. We all deal with doubts. We all know what it's like to stop and to question what's happening around us and to reassess what we believe. There's a story I read about a kindergarten class. Uh, a teacher had assigned the, the class a task of, of writing, drawing a picture like kindergarten teachers sometimes do. And the teacher was walking around the classroom observing her students drawing their pictures and she came upon one little girl and she asked the little girl, now, sweetheart, what are you drawing? To which the little girl replied, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher paused a little bit and said, but honey, nobody knows what God looks like. Without missing a beat, the little girl didn't even look up from her picture, and he said, and she said, they will in a minute. That's great, isn't it? Not everybody has that kind of confidence in their understanding of who God is, do they? In fact, many of us struggle regularly with doubt. I believe every Christian at some point who takes their faith seriously struggles with doubt to some degree or the other. Christianity is a, a religion, like all religions, that's founded upon faith. Faith is not the same thing as certainty. By very definition, faith is not certainty. It's faith. There is, there is always within faith this element of mystery. It always does. If there's no mystery, there's no faith. And faith, by definition, carries an element of mystery. It is not the same thing as certainty. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You can even understand in that very simple definition of faith that there's an element of mystery. When we talk about having confidence in things that we can't see, there's mystery underneath that. When we talk about having an assurance of things that are hoped for, there's an element of mystery underneath that. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, we are people who walk by faith, not by sight. There's a difference between walking by faith and walking by sight. Walking by sight is walking 
with a degree of certainty. We can see what's in front of us. We can, we can sort of uh, assess with all of our senses what's in our pathway, and we walk according to what we know based on what we see. But walking by faith isn't like that. By its very essence, there's mystery. There are things we believe that, that we don't fully understand. There are things that we embrace that we can't fully explain. And that is true not only of Christianity, but it's true of every single faith that anyone embraces. But as Christians, our faith is not a blind faith. It's not a, a faith that's blind without evidence. I remember, it's been a number of years ago now, that I participated in sort of a panel debate down at the College of Charleston um, uh, just leading up to one of the presidential elections. And the, the theme of the debate was the role of faith in politics. And, and I'll, I'll never forget one little moment in that particular conversation. I was there. There was a, a math professor from the College of Charleston who was a very active uh, secular humanist in the, in the area. And, and I'll never forget that when he was speaking at one point in that, in that debate, he defined faith this way. He said, faith is belief without evidence. Faith is belief without evidence. And then he began to, to sort of cast the conversation this way. He began to sort of uh, posit it from his perspective that people like me who were, were Christians were people who were people of faith. We, we just believe things with no evidence. And people like him are people of science who believe what they believe based on empirical evidence. And so in his mind, and by his definition, faith is foolish because it's blind. And science is reasonable because there's evidence. Well, of course, it's an absolutely ridiculous definition of faith. I don't know any person of faith who would say uh, that to them, faith means belief without evidence. In fact, that's the opposite of Christian faith. Christian faith, while there is mystery, is anchored in evidence. We don't have time to sort of go down that hole too far, but I'll just simply say Psalm 19, 1, if you want to look there, simply tells us this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The, the psalmist declares that his faith is not a faith that's blind, that's without evidence. In fact, he says, if you want to have evidence of what I believe, all you have to do is a very simple exercise. Bend your neck backwards and open your eyes and look at the night sky. And all around you is evidence for what I believe, that there is a God who made all things, that there's a grand design to the universe. That's a faith that's anchored in evidence, not a faith that's blind. But whenever we believe things by faith, there is mystery underneath it. And when there's mystery, there's always a door that opens its way for doubt. And circumstances can come into our lives which, which shake our foundations and cause us to stop and, and question and reassess. People come into our world, they ask questions that we don't have answers for, and all of a sudden we find our minds spiraling in directions where we have never spiraled before. The enemy of our souls comes in and begins to whisper in our ear what he did to Eve in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. Did God really say what you think he said? Does God really mean what you think he means? And the doubts begin to assail us. We used a definition a few weeks ago for doubt by Oz Guinness. I think it's a good one. He said doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith 
and unbelief. A state of mind in suspension between those two poles. The Bible does not present doubt as an oddity. In fact, it, it presents doubt as, as rather common. If you were to sort of flip through the Bible and look at all of those who, who the Bible sort of projects as heroes of the faith, you find that all of their lives were a mixed bag of remarkable faith and really stunning doubts. Abraham, we could begin there, was a man who had the faith to, to, to pick up and to pick up his family and to leave his home and to head toward an unidentified land of promise that God said he would lead him to, a remarkable act of faith. But very shortly down the line in the journey, he doubts God's protection and provision and lies and says his wife is his sister. A remarkable moment of faith and an incredible moment of doubt. David, a, a man after God's own heart who, who single-handedly takes on the giant Goliath with a sling and a few stones. In short order, doubts how seriously God takes sin and immorality and falls in remarkable fashion. Peter, the great apostle in the New Testament, who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, a few moments later says to a little girl, I don't, I don't know who Jesus is, I've never met the guy. Remarkable moment of faith and an incredible moment of doubt. Jesus, everybody else might fall by the wayside. Everybody else might abandon you, but I will follow you and I will stick with you even if I have to die doing it. Remarkable statement of faith to which Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. All of the heroes of the Bible are a mixed bag of faith and doubt and that's not a bad thing doubt is often the tool that God uses to deepen our faith it often drives us to Christ and it, and it drives us to the word of God to search out answers that we hadn't asked before it forces us to pursue the truth in ways that perhaps we haven't pursued it previously it's a great tool in God's sanctification in our life Chuck Swindoll says this of, of doubt and, and how it sort of works in this part of our life. He says, doubts fuel the believer's pursuit of real answers to life's most troubling questions. Doubts make deep divers out of novice swimmers. Doubts cause us to go down into the labyrinthine realm of profound truths to find treasures many people don't even know exist. Doubters are deep thinkers who need something more than churchy platitudes and folk theology. Doubters crave spiritual truths that work rather than cliches that merely decorate their denial. God uses doubt in some remarkably positive ways in our life. But while doubt is a normal part of a, of a Christian's journey, it's not something that we're to celebrate. It's not something that we're to obsess over. We're not to enshrine doubt as though it's some sort of, 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 of moral virtue. That it is not. There's a whole literally cultural movement that's just sort of blown through our culture uh, called postmodernism. And postmodernism was really a whole movement based on this idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth, that we can't actually know anything, that we should doubt and question everything, and that we can never come to any kind of certainty about what we believe. The best we can do is gather up with other people and have conversations about our doubts. Well, that's insane. And that's why it's blown through our culture and gone away. But that's what happens when you enshrine doubt 
and you make it a virtue. It is not. Shelby Abbott writes this. He says, an intentional celebration of doubt can quickly backslide into a glorification of it. So it's crucial we approach our doubts with discernment. It's easy for doubt to lead to unbelief if we obsess over it, which many people have a tendency to do when doubt comes knocking. The Bible calls us not to enshrine doubt as some sort of a great virtue, and it calls us not to obsess over it either. The Bible calls doubters to, in moments of doubt, pursue truth and to pursue Christ and to pursue certainty. In fact, the Gospel of Luke itself was written as a tool in that pursuit. If you were to go back to chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel, verse 3, Luke writes, he says this, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Theophilus is, is wrestling through doubts, and Luke writes in order to drive him towards certainty. And that's what Christians do in response to doubt. We don't enshrine it, we don't celebrate it, and we don't obsess over it. Alistair McGrath says this, and I think it's helpful. He says, doubt is like an attention-seeking child. The more attention you pay to it, the more attention it demands. By worrying about your doubts, you get locked into a vicious cycle of uncertainty. What do we do when we struggle with doubt? We run to Christ like John did. We run to the word of God. We, we bring openly and honestly before him our doubts and our questions and we lay them at his feet. And like the man we looked at in, in Mark chapter nine last time, we simply say to him, Lord, I believe I have faith, but my faith is imperfect and I need your help in my areas where I doubt, where there's unbelief. If you read the Psalms, the psalmists do this regularly. Provide for us a marvelous template for how to do this. But as we think through John and as we think through what's going on with him in this prison, as we think through our own lives and how we wrestle through doubt, we need to affirm again that there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt flows out of faith. There is something that we have embraced by faith and believe that now questions are being raised and we're wondering about again. Unbelief is an act of the will. Henry Drummond says this, doubt is I can't believe, unbelief is I won't believe. Doubt is honesty, unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light, unbelief is content with darkness. And Gene Campbell Morgan said this, he said, but keep in mind there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is an act of the will, while doubt is born out of a troubled mind and a broken heart. Listen, I want to submit to you this morning, I don't want to go too far down the road with this, but as Christians, particularly as Christians who take seriously the call of Christ to make disciples of all nations and to share Christ with people who don't know him, we need to learn the difference between doubt and unbelief. And when we look at our text this morning, our text this morning, we see Jesus encountering very, both of those things very directly and responding remarkably different to each one. He encounters the doubt of John the Baptist and he encounters the unbelief of the Pharisees and the lawyers and those who follow them. And on the one hand, he commends John and on the other hand, he condemns them. 
So when Jesus encounters doubt, he does one thing, and when he encounters unbelief, he does something altogether different. When he encounters doubt, he commends the doubter, and we see that in the first part of our text, beginning beginning in verse 24. The stage is set. John's in jail, put there by Herod Antipas. He's been getting reports of the ministry of Jesus. The the reports are are generating doubts in his mind, and he's wondering what in the world is going on because he's a faithful Jew. And just like all faithful Jews, he expected the Messiah to show up and to do certain things and to be a certain way. He expected particularly for the Messiah to judge the wicked, to throw off the Romans, to restore Israel to her former glory, and to establish his kingdom. But his, his disciples are bringing back reports, and he's not hearing one word of any of those things actually taking place. He hears about Jesus' preaching he hears about Jesus healing ministry and that's all and well and fine but however there's no sign of overthrowing Rome there's no sign of him judging the wicked there's no sign of him establishing his own kingdom and and restoring Israel to its former glory and so he wonders did I get this all wrong have I got Jesus wrong maybe he's not the Messiah and so he sends two disciples to ask him hey are you the one are you the coming one or should we be looking for someone else And Jesus, instead of rebuking John, he condescends to John. He meets him in his doubt. And he graciously answers by giving a very vivid sort of living illustration of his identity for these disciples to take back to John. And that's exactly what they do. And John, being a man of the Old Testament, would have recognized in Jesus' answer the perfect answer to his question. Jesus is indeed the one. And I'm certain John was content with that, though Luke doesn't tell us. But immediately on the heels of doing that, Jesus turns from these two disciples of John and he turns to the crowd and he begins to address those who've gathered and who are there watching him do the miracles and who are observing this interaction between he and the disciples of John. And he asked them a question, and he asked them a question three times. And in this questioning, he's giving this remarkable public commendation of John the Baptist. And the question that he asked them is really very simple. The question is, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He asked it three times. The first two times are rhetorical, and the answer is very obviously to anyone who's listening, no. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see when you went out to see John? Did you go out to see a weak and wavering uh, sort of a preacher? Did you go out to see somebody who lacks certainty and is blowing back and forth in the winds of prevailing culture? Did you go out to see some wishy-washy preacher who didn't know what he believed and who couldn't quite figure anything out? The answer to that question is obviously what? Absolutely not. If John was anything... Or if John was not anything, he was not a, wee, a reed waving in the wind. John was a man of bold and firm conviction. He was an uncompromising preacher of the truth. He was a man who said hard things that people did not want to hear and calling out people's sin and calling them to repent and be baptized as a symbol of their preparation for the coming Messiah. He preached with power and he preached with certainty and he preached with conviction and that's why people left the city and went all the way out to the Jordan River to hear him. Not because he was weak and wavering but because he was sure and certain and convicted and powerful. What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man in soft clothing? 
But what kind of preacher did you go out to hear when you went to hear John? Did you go out to hear some, some soft, privileged, self-indulgent preacher? Is that what you went to hear? The word soft here is translated in other places, effeminate. What kind of preacher did you go out to hear when you went to the Jordan River, he says to the crowd? Did you go out to, look, to listen to some frilly, lacy, embroidered, clothing-wearing sort of man who wears the wardrobe of nobility? Is that who you went to see? And the obvious answer to that question is no. See, if you answer, I know you're awake. The obvious answer to that question is no. We know what John's wardrobe consisted of. A camel's hair garment and a leather belt. Hardly Calvin Klein. He couldn't have cared less about what he wore. And his food was locusts and honey. Hardly Ruth's Chris. He was a man who was absolutely in every way not like the other preachers of his day. He was a man who was the opposite of how the religious leaders in Israel behaved and acted. They were the ones who wore soft, frilly, effeminate clothing and dressed and pranced around like nobility. They were the ones who were wishy-washy all over the place, pandering to people. But John wasn't like that. He wasn't like the religious elites of his society. He was not a soft, effeminate panderer who was living in sort of self-indulgent luxury and parading himself. That isn't who the people went out to see. If they wanted to see that, they didn't have to go anywhere. All they had to do was stick around Jerusalem. And so he asked him a third time, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? And the answer to that question is what? Yes, indeed, you did. You went out to see a prophet, but not just a prophet, more than a prophet, the greatest of the prophets, the last and the greatest of the prophets. That's who John was. He's the last and the greatest of the prophets, the one prophesied by Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. No other prophet in the history of prophecy had the, the role that John had. He was the one and only prophet who fulfilled Malachi 3, 1. He was the only one who had the privileged position of being the forerunner of the Messiah. No other prophet had that. All other previous prophets predicted, what, predicted a Messiah who would come. John was the prophet who announced that the Messiah is here. The Olympics are going on and nobody's watching them, but you know enough about the Olympics to know that before the Olympics show up, Somebody somewhere in the world starts carrying a torch and they run, right? From here to there to everywhere and they carry that torch through a bunch of different cities until it gets to wherever the Olympics are gonna be held and then somebody carries that torch up and lights a big flame that kicks off the Olympics, right? That, that torch bearer is the person who's running ahead of the Olympics and announcing to all who will pay attention to the torch that's flaming that the Olympics are coming, right? And his job is over when he lights the flame and the Olympics are lit. It's a good parallel to the ministry of John. That's who he was. He was the, the torchbearer running ahead saying, I'm not the one that you should be concerned about, but something in someone remarkable is coming. No other prophet in the history of prophets had that kind of status and had that kind of a role. It set John above all the prophets. All of the other prophets saw bits and pieces from a distance. But John saw Jesus face to face. No other prophet had that remarkable privilege. 
And so John is called the greatest. But not just the greatest prophet, he goes on to say about John something that's really remarkable, that he is the, the greatest of who? All those who are born of a woman. Now, we don't have to push that analogy too far, but you understand that those who are born of a woman are all those who were ever born, right? See, I'm tempted to say things there, but I'm not, I'm just gonna move on beyond that. But you understand the analogy as he means it, that people who are born are born from a woman. And John was one of those people, and he was a person like every other person, but he was in some sense the greatest of everyone who had ever been born up to that point. That's a remarkable thing to say about a man who was at that very moment sitting in jail, assailed by doubts to his faith. Think about that for a moment. Not only does he not rebuke this man, but he says to everyone who will hear, he's the greatest man that's ever been up to this point. He's the best the human race has had to offer. What do we make of this? Well, let me just say this. The statement is not a statement that's based on John's merit, though he was a remarkable individual. The statement is based on his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. John was a remarkable individual. He had a very unique position in the history of salvation. He was the bridge from the Old Testament to the New. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, while at the same time, the first of the New Testament preachers. He was the bridge between sort of the era of promise and the era of fulfillment. And it's that status as that individual who had a unique place in the history of humanity and in the history of salvation. It's in that sense that John is the greatest who ever lived up to that point. And it becomes evident by Jesus' next comment because he says something that at first seems a little perplexing. He says, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is what? It's greater than John. John's the greatest who's ever lived, and yet he's, he's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. It's a remarkable statement. Even the weakest, newest Christian is greater than John. How is that even possible? Well, he's talking again here, not by merit. He's talking about, in the broad scope of the history of salvation and the unfolding of salvation, that even the newest and weakest Christian is greater than John in the sense that he or she holds a, a more privileged place in the history of salvation. Even what John only saw in part, we, the, 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 the weakest, newest Christian in the New Testament era, sees in full. We've been given the full gospel. John only saw the beginning of it. He only saw the beginning of the unfolding of that. We see the whole thing. He's sitting in jail wondering how it's all going to play out. You and I and every other believer in the New Testament era, what he means by the kingdom of God here, are people who understand how it all worked out. We've been exposed to it all. We're privileged because the mysteries of the Old Testament have been revealed to us in ways that the prophets never saw or even imagined. You and I understand remarkable things that John didn't understand. We understand the fulfillment of the life and the ministry of Jesus all the way to the end. 
we understand and have been exposed to his atoning death and his burial and his resurrection from the dead. We've been exposed to and understand his offer of salvation to the Gentile world and the inauguration and the growth of the church all throughout the book of Acts. And we understand the explanation of the work of Christ in salvation because we have all the letters in the New Testament. And we see a, we've even seen a picture of the end times and the second coming of Christ because we have the book of Revelation. We have the fullness of the gospel where John only saw a little fragment of it. And in that sense, we have a more privileged position than he did. John and every Old Testament prophet had none of that stuff. Not to mention the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have. It's remarkable that Jesus says these things. But, but more than anything, instead of condemning his doubts, he commends John to the crowd. What a wonderful thing to say at about, at a man, about a man in the lowest of his moments. Now, Jesus doesn't condemn honest doubt. He didn't with John and he doesn't today. If you're here this morning and you're wrestling with doubts and you're struggling with this, you need to hear this this morning. You need to pay attention to this text. Because if it says anything, it says you don't need to run away from God when you doubt. You need to run to him. You don't need to be ashamed that you have questions that you can't answer. You don't need to be ashamed that, that for the moment your faith is wavering. Pursue Christ. Pursue the truth. And he'll meet you there. Not with condemnation and not with words of harshness. But with grace to meet you in that moment. That's how Jesus responds to doubt. But it's not how he responds to unbelief. And the rest of our text really lays that out. And Jesus gives sort of a, a parable here that is pretty easy to understand when you understand the cultural context. He says, to what shall I compare this people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. Or John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. You say he has a demon. Son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and a sinner, and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all our children. He turns from talking about John and commending him in the midst of his doubt to talking about the crowd that's gathered there. And he says, you know, I need to come up with an illustration to describe what the crowd is like. This generation here, what does he mean when he says this generation? Without spending a lot of time on context because our time is short, we'll just simply understand it to mean this. He's talking specifically to the Pharisees and the lawyers who he identifies a little later and those who blindly follow them, which is the majority of the crowd. How can I illustrate the responses of the God to the gospel from this generation of people? He says, here's an analogy. You're like bratty, selfish, uncooperative kids. Those are not words of kindness, by the way. You're like bratty, selfish, uncooperative kids. I, this is just a complete aside. I thought, I, I have to say this. I, I, when I'm studying, I, I'll read six, 20, depending on my text, you know, six to 12 commentaries to try and get some, some understanding of the text. And one of the ones I always go to is John MacArthur's commentary series. He, he, he did a whole message on this part of the text. And he called it the parable of the brats. And in his commentary, he defined brats this way. A brat is this. They're children who are unruly, disobedient, objectionable, obstreperous, refractory, recalcitrant, incorrigible, obstinate, and intractable. I read that 
and busted out laughing, to be honest with you, because I knew immediately I had to pull out a dictionary because I don't know what half of those words mean. So you can look them up for yourself. I'm not even going to tell you what they mean. Just suffice it to say, they all refer to brattiness. And you can use them in your uh, interactions with your children, you know, this week when little Johnny's misbehaving. Now, little Johnny, you understand that you are being very obstreperous right now. I don't know what that means, Mom. Okay, you're being very refractory and you need to stop. That was just an aside, for just because I thought it was funny. What is this? It does capture what Jesus is talking about here. He says, what is this generation like? Let me tell you what you're like. You're like the kids that play around in the marketplace. And, and in the culture, people didn't have parks. They didn't have playgrounds. They didn't have places to go for children to play. They would go to the central marketplace of the city, which is where adults did their business. And they would drag along the kids with them. And so while the adults are going along doing their business, kids do what kids do. And what do kids do when they get together? They play. They play games. They make up stuff to do and make up games to play. And the games that they make up are largely reflective of the things that they experience in life. And two of the games in this particular century that kids would often play together when they gathered at the marketplace were the games of wedding and the game funeral. Why do you think that is? Well, those were two of the most celebratory things that they experienced in their culture. And so they would mimic that and play games with one another. So they'd play wedding, and the kids would pretend like there was husband and there was wife, and they would pretend like there was a flute playing, and there was music, and there was dancing. And when you played wedding, you danced, and you were happy, and you were joyful, and you pretended like you were at a happy wedding. And when you played funeral, it was the opposite, right? You played a sad dirge, and you went around and acted like you were mourning and crying and weeping like people do at funerals. You say, well, it sounds kind of like dark. They need to have better games. Well, that's what they did. Jesus was in touch with his culture, and he used illustrations out of real life. This is what kids did. But whenever there were kids gathered in Jesus' day, just like whenever kids gather in our day, there's always the one or two kids, right, that are obstreperous, right, that are refractory. They don't cooperate. And it doesn't matter what the game is, they don't want to play that game. If all the other kids are wanting to play wedding, there's always the kid or two say, I don't want to play wedding. I don't want to play funeral. And if all the other kids want to play funeral, there's always a kid or two says, I don't want to play funeral. I want to play wedding. And it doesn't matter what other people want to do. They always want to do something altogether different. They're the spoiled brat kids, the holdouts, who have to have their own way or they won't participate. It's a really striking analogy. And Jesus says, you know what this generation is like? That's what you're like. You're like those kids. You're like those uncooperative kids who don't ever want to go along with what's happening. Doesn't matter what kind of message or what kind of messenger is delivered to you, you're going to reject it because you're trapped in blind unbelief. John came with a particular style and a particular message. John came with a hard message of sin and of repentance and of acts being laid at the the root of the tree and the judgment of God. And John came with a very sort of hard delivery in a hard place with a sort of a hard affect about him. And you rejected him. You ultimately said he's demon-possessed. That's what's going on with that guy. And then Jesus comes along with the exact opposite message. He comes along with a message of grace and mercy for sinners. And he says, 
sits down with anybody, whether they're a tax collector or whether they're a prostitute or whether they're a sinner of whatever flavor, and he talks to them about grace and the mercy of God and the fact that they can repent of their sin and be saved. And you look at him and you say, oh, he's a drunkard. He's a, he's a friend of sinners. Doesn't matter who the messenger is. However they bring the message, you refuse to believe. You're self-righteous, spoiled brats who are wrapped up in unbelief. You wouldn't listen to John. You won't listen to Jesus. You won't listen to anybody. You're people who have, have adopted the attitude, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. And there are people just like that in our culture today who are trapped in unbelief. They made a willful choice to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And any messenger and any evangelist that comes and brings the gospel to them, they'll find a fault, they'll find a problem, they'll find some reason to express their unbelief. Cynical, skeptical, mainly because the message of the gospel challenges their comfortable, secure, and self-centered lives. And they will not give that up to repent and trust Christ. When Jesus responds to this kind of unbelief very differently than he did John's doubt, he calls it out in very vivid terminology. And then he moves on from it. And that's sort of the track record of how he navigates with unbelief throughout his ministry. There's one piece that we didn't cover back in verse 29 and 30. I'll end with this. Luke gives us sort of a parenthetical con, uh, sort of um, a, a comment right in the middle of recording what Jesus said on this particular day. He says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. He gives us this, I think, in the midst of this, sort of to call to our attention how people respond to the gospel, how they respond to the truth of God when it's presented to them. Every time the truth of God goes out, the people who hear it respond. Every single one responds. Everybody responds when they hear it. When John the Baptist preached, he called for a response. He called people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He called people to be baptized, the symbolic baptism of cleansing of sin in preparation for the Messiah. And everybody who heard him preach made a conscious choice. They repented or they didn't. They got baptized or they didn't. There was no other option. It was just one or the other. You respond with faith or you reject in unbelief. The truth of God always divides the crowd. That was then and it has always been throughout the ministry of Jesus today the way people respond to the gospel message. There is no third way. When you hear the gospel, you respond in faith and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and entrust your life to him or you reject it in blind unbelief. There's not a third way. Jesus said whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters he would say later enter by the narrow gate 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There's a wide gate and there's a narrow gate, but there's only two gates. There's an easy way and there's a hard way, but there's only two ways. The way of faith and the way of unbelief. And unbelief can show up in a lot of different ways. It can show up like the Pharisees and the lawyers as a sort of a hostile, combative sort of unbelief. Or unbelief can just simply show up as indifference or procrastination. A person who hears the truth of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and says, you know what, I'll just, I'll, I'll think about that later. That's not a third way. That's just a form of unbelief. And that's how the, cloud, the crowd split on this day, and Luke wants us to see that. There are people who declared God just. That's just a simply way, a way of saying they admitted God was right about their sin and their need for repentance, and they responded to it. And I think it's interesting that he says, including tax collectors. He reminds us the kinds of people who tend to respond in faith are the people who are most desperate, who can't hide from the fact that they're sinners. It's the people who think that they're righteous that have a problem. But there's always those who believe, who declare God just and say, you know what, God, what you said's true and what you said is right. I am a sinner and I have rebelled against you and I do deserve judgment in hell and my only hope is that you, Lord Jesus, would die in my place and I can entrust my life to you and somehow your death on my behalf could resolve the problem I have with sin and make things right between me and my heavenly Father. But then there are always those like the Pharisees and the lawyers who reject that who refuse to accept that they're sinners, who refuse to accept that salvation comes by faith, who refuse to accept that they need to repent and be baptized. Who want to hold on to their religious works. Who want to hold on to the idea that somehow they can be good enough to earn God's favor. The gospel of Jesus Christ, then and today, always demands a response. And every one of us in the room has made a response to it already. It's either been a response of faith or a response of unbelief. If you're sitting here this morning thinking you're sitting on the fence between the two, there is no fence between the two. You're sitting in unbelief. And you're sitting under the judgment of Almighty God. And should you leave our presence and enter into His anytime soon, There'll be nothing of grace extended to you. Only the wrath of God due for your sin and the judgment you rightfully deserve. Why not today respond by faith? Say what the tax collector said of that on that particular day. God is just, he's right. I am a sinner. I do need Christ or I'm doomed. Won't you repent this morning? Won't you trust Christ? Don't leave this place steeped in your unbelief. Respond in faith. This morning, if you're here and you've already responded in faith and your faith is real and it's authentic in your life, but like John, you're, you're wavering. Something has happened. There's been circumstances. There's been people. There have been questions. There's an enemy whispering in your ear. It's, it's raised doubts and questions. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be embarrassed about that. Take those things to Christ. 
He'll meet you. He'll condescend to you in that place in your life. And he'll bring grace. And he'll bring mercy. And if you seek him in those questions, you'll find him. He'll make himself known to you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you're remarkable and amazing. We can never mine out the depths of your wisdom. Every time we think we sort of get it, we find that there's more to get. And even in our text this morning, we are, we're struck by your, the difference in your response between your response to those who doubt and your response to those trapped in unbelief. We thank you that you're merciful and you're gracious. That even when our faith wavers, you don't abandon us. Even when we're on the verge of falling away, you don't retreat from us. But when we reach out to you, you meet us in that place. And your love and your mercy is extended to us there. I pray for anyone this morning who's struggling in this area, that they would find that to be their experience even now. And yet, Lord, we understand the reality that when your truth, the truth of your gospel goes out, there's always a response of faith and there's always a response of unbelief. Forbid it, Lord, that anybody would leave this place in unbelief today. Why would they live? Why would they die when they could live? Why would they believe a lie when they could embrace the truth? Why would they try to earn what could never be earned? can only be received as a gift. By your spirit, Lord, burst through their unbelief this morning and bring to life faith. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.